right. If you're new to the class, Mike Bedard, there's a lot you don't know. <laughs> um, we are just trying to deal with common objections, a little more sophisticated than they were in the past. I'm, I keep reiterating this because it's just true. And we always need to be ready, at least to an extent. So the, the purpose of this whole class is just like um, basic, just like a primer, 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 primer. <laughs> you know, just very introductory, and just to give you an awareness. So if you're talking to somebody and they'll say something like, well, how can you trust your Bible? Don't you know that you don't have original copies? You don't have copies of the copies? That kind of thing. So that's not going to like just shock you and like, oh my goodness, I never heard that before as a Christian. You will be able to respond in that, at least get started in a conversation. And that's all, that's my only goal here is to, to help you a motorbike. familiarize yourself with with these you know with with these ideas and objections. So that's one. And then the next one has to do with the canon. Like, how do you know? Which books belong in the Bible? How do you receive those books? How could you tell that they're really the books God intended you to have? So, it's like a biker gang out there. That's <laughs> um, only one bike. <laughs> but, um, so we're, we're talking about, you know, how we got the 27 books of the New Testament especially and, and why they're in Scripture. And, um, we're, we're looking at different ways people approach this. Our way is just very biblical, very presuppositional. Like, you know, God is in charge of all this. He brings it together. We receive them. They're authenticated in certain ways. We can trust them. We know these are the books of the Bible. So that's kind of where we are as Christians, and we're discussing that as Reformed Christians uh, but there are other ways that people determine which books we have in the New Testament. So we want to talk about the ones that have, you know, they're they're flawed. They just are. They're 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 not solid because they ultimately depend on man and not on God to decide which books belong in the New Testament. We want to say, wait a minute, this, these are from God, and here's how we know that. So that's kind of where we were going. And last week we started in on this, and like uh, again, what. All this is, I just want to bottom line it for you. I'm not going to get into the weeds and the depth. That's, we could, that, this is a course, seminary level course to get into that. For us, it's just kind of being aware, not being caught off guard, and having a starting point, having a handle um, to, to hold on to as you're talking to people about these kinds of things. As you're witnessing as people trying to, you know, discourage you from being a Christian and from believing in your Bible and that kind of thing. So this is kind of a, a guard for that. So how do we determine which books are in the New Testament? There are different ways that people do that. They call them models. And the, we introduced last week, the first one was called the Community Determined Model. And that's the, um, the most prevalent ones. That are, that are out there. And we're going to talk about a few of them tonight very quickly, and then I'm going to introduce how we determine, how we believe the books of the New Testament were determined to be part of that. So that's what we're going to do this evening. So on your outlines, we have um, community-determined models, and that is the idea that the canon, the books in the New Testament, are authenticated, and you know which books belong in the canon when it's received by some group 
um, or a community. So a church says, okay, these are the books. And so our minds always go to uh, the Council of Nicaea. And they say, okay, this, this determined the books of the Bible. We finally have a canon. You know, we finally have these books to be, um, th- these are the official books of, of the New Testament. Um, so this, they determine it by like the reception, by the community, usage in that way. Uh, canonicity, and here's the big deal. And these models and this idea, the canonicity, what ends up in the, as a New Testament is determined by, um, it's something that's imposed on the books, right? It's determined by a group of men, a group of people, church, so on and so forth. And that's, we don't want to go there because what that does, it puts man and the church over the Bible, so a big deal for us as Reformed Christians, I would just say as Christians, is our highest chief authority is what? It's the Word of God. That's why we say we are sola scriptura. And that is a big, big deal for us. It is the Bible that holds the ultimate, because it is the Word of God, it holds ultimate authority. doesn't mean we don't have other authorities, other things that we look at, but ultimately it's a scripture over the church, a scripture over everything. Does that make sense? Okay. That's a big, big deal. Um, some examples of the canon determined by the community, how these books are authenticated. Um, the first one, as you see on your outline, is the historical critical model. Now, this is called the Bert Arman model. It is very popular among liberals, um, among progressives. And here's the big deal with this. They believe that the canon is simply the result of human activity. And that's it. We talked about this last week. Um, It's a product of man. There's really no divine activity involved in it at all. Um, It's the, and this is big, the naturalization of canon. So it is the idea that it's, we have our books of the Bible because we won the battle. Right? Our guys won. Our team won. If it was the Gnostics, we would be reading Gnostic scriptures, you know, Gnostic gospels, and so on and so forth. It just happened in the theological wars, the political circumstances, the cultural trends. We were the quote winners, and that's why we have it. So that's this is kind of a the, this, this historical critical model of it. Um, we're the winners, and that's why we have what we have. A uh, good thing about it is they do say that the community of believers does play a role in determining which books are in the canon. That's that's true. That's good. The church does play a part and a role in that. Um, and we talked about this last week. It didn't just drop from the sky. It wasn't just one person like Joseph Smith. His just based, you know, we say drop from the sky, but, you know, he went into the woods and was, con- you know, the angel told him what to write and so on and so forth. Um how many of you heard of Scientology? It's not necessarily a Christian, but yeah, and at seminary I did uh, one of my term papers on Scientology, and um, now I'm forgetting everything about it. It was so long ago. <laughs> Who's the founder of it? Al Ron Hubbard. Yeah, and his book. You know, and his whole premise was like, you know, this is kind of in his mind. It was like. Oh, you could just create your own religious movement, your own church. It's kind of based on fantasy, just crazy things. I, it, but people bought into it. But you know, something that was quote given to him that came to him in that way. Um, that's not the case here, at least in that way. That's one good thing. But obviously, the the real negatives about this is the insistence that the church or men play the definitive role. 
we play a role in determining canon, but not the definitive role which books become canon. Um, it puts because it puts the church or men over the scripture rather than the scripture over men in the church. The insistence on the naturalization of canon, that's a big negative. God has no rule in it at all, strictly human endeavor. And that's that's a big deal. And and I think you need to be aware of this in, in a very practical way, because if you go to uh, many, many churches in this land, this is basically, and there's variations on this as well, we're not going to get into those, but this is basically how the ministers would view the scriptures. You wouldn't necessarily know that because they use the same language or read from the books, but they see it basically in this way. They have what's called a very low view of scripture, a low view of inspiration. They don't really believe that this is the inspired and errant and fallible word of God and that you know the books that we have really came out of this. So if you go to churches, just remember this, or if you know anybody that goes to churches like the United Methodist Church, the United Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church um, in America, no, no, blah, Presbyterian Church USA. So you'll see these. Um, um, what else? Most, what's the Church of England? Episcopalian churches. Uh, they, that's this is how they view. You know, they they go to church. They go to the Episcopalian church. You have to be very careful. Now, there's always going to be conservatives there that really do have a higher view of Scripture. But for the most part, this is what they believe, and this is what they believe about the books. It's such a low view of Scripture. And then we want to say to them, like, how do you know that um, that you know that they're just based on on man's kind of word and God's not involved really in any of this? Um, that it's strictly a man-centered endeavor, um, they'll say, you know, it's based on their worldview. And when you start talking about the worldview, you get to what people actually believe. And so most liberals don't really believe the God of the Bible, that God is truly God. And that's what you'll get to. And it's, see, it has very practical per- outworking, too. It really does. And so you really have to be heads up. So if you hear about this, well, how do we get our Bible? Well, it was just the battle of the theologians in the early centuries, and we happen to be the ones that uh, got in there. So that is the uh, historical critical model. Then we talked, we introduced last week the Roman Catholic model. This is another one with the community. Actually, the church decides which books are authentic and which books are the books to be included in the New Testament. And that really goes back, I guess our biggest problem with it is Kind of the authority structures. I mean, what gives you, you know, as the church, as men, the right to say this, this, this are the books? Even though we have the same books, same 27 books, we have problems with the Apocrypha, which we'll talk about in one class. Um, and even though the Roman Catholics do uh, obviously hold to the idea of divinity being involved, that these are divinely inspired books and so forth. But here's the problem with the Roman Catholic church or the Roman Catholic model and it has to do with sola scriptura. Is it is it the scripture over us or is it us over the scripture? And that's a, a big, big deal because when it's us over the scripture, no matter how holy you try to be or righteous you try to be, you're going to go off. You're going to go astray. Eventually, you're going to import what you believe or what men believe into the scripture or into, into the church itself. So that's a, a big, big deal. We've talked about the threefold authority structure 
in the Roman Catholic Church. Number one is scripture. Of course, they do believe that scripture is authoritative. But then they also believe in church tradition. And which, so when you think of church tradition, would you put that on the same par as scripture itself? They do, absolutely. And last week we talked about how that church tradition oftentimes, most of the time, usurps what's actually is written in the Bible. And that's a big deal. That's a big consequence um, when you allow um, man to, to decide what is scripture and what is not. And then the bottom line, the most importantly, is the, the magisterium. And that's, that's on your outline as well. That's the pope. That's the bishops. That's the college of cardinals. The college of cardinals are like the popes. I always like it to like the Godfather. You have the Godfather who's the top, but then you have the consigliere or the consiglieres. That's what the bishops will be like. They give counsel. They vote on things. That kind of the College of Cardinals have. They do have power, but ultimately it's with the the Pope. And here's the deal. And here's where that that switch comes in is the magisterium has the right to determine what counts as scripture and tradition. They're the ones that say, okay, this is scripture. This is tradition. They have the, the power over that. So if you were raised Roman Catholic, did you ever have a say in anything? All you did was sit there and learn. And all you did was sit there and have to agree with it. You didn't question. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, you might have little questions about particular things, but you would never question the authority of the church. First of all, you get beat by a nun if you did that. I'm just teasing some kind of. But, you know, or, or you know, get in trouble. Yeah, you get the... Uh, so, so, but, but that's that's that that top-down authority. You're not, you can't be a Berean. You can't ask questions. You can't say, you know, ha- have any have anything to say against them. Their word, and that's the way they like it. Is the final word. How would you like to have Pastor Joe had the final word? That you couldn't question me or Aaron or Luke. It'd be in big trouble, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I get questions. We get questions all the time, which we love and we invite. Um, and then it's the only authority that can rightly interpret the scripture and tradition. So the bottom line is, and, and, and again, I'm giving our perspective. If a Roman Catholic was in this room who really knew about these things, there'd be a lot of pushback right now on me. So again, this is just surface level for sure. But I'm, again, I'm trying to bottom line this for you. And when it comes down to it, it is the church that determines. It is the church that says, okay, these are going to be the books that are included in the New Testament because we say so. It might sound like, you know, half a dozen of this, six of, six of one, half a dozen of another, but it has big implications, as, as you can see, as we're talking about here. Um, so even with Roman Catholic writings and books, you had to, if you were writing a book, even with regards to theology or something, you have to have the church's approval if it's a spiritual matter. That's the and I mentioned that last week. The imp, you never heard of the imp, I just can't say it. Um, the improv. Imp, imprimatur. Imprimatur. Well, it's I M P R I M A T U R. Official declaration by the Catholic Church, uh, the Church authority, that a book or other printed work may be published. 
it's usually only applied or granted to books of religious topics from a Catholic perspective. So, you know, like, it's very guarded. Like, they have to give the stamp of approval. And if you would buy a book, you would see it in the front of the book. It's a seal. It says this has been approved basically by the, the Catholic Church, so it's okay for you to read. If they don't give it to you, then you shouldn't read anything. Now, this was when the church had more control over their people. Not so much today. I still think they do it in limited ways. But but you could see that that, that church's authority over all these things. So practically and functionally speaking, it's the church. It's the Pope that holds the ultimate authority. And our arguments, well, wait a minute, Scripture holds the ultimate authority. It's God shows us and teaches us. But again, for Roman Catholic, it's Jesus speaking through the church, through the Pope, who is the apostle, to validate the books of the Bible. Okay? They do believe the Bible is authoritative, but not in a way where it's self-authenticating. That's a big, big deal. The church and scripture are not on the same level for Roman Catholics, bottom line. The church must be subject to the Bible. That's our argument, and not vice versa. Um, because then you end up what's called, with what's called, we're solo scriptura. If that's the case, you end up with what's called solo ecclesia, or the church, really, the church only in, in that way. The church holds all the authority over all matters. Um, ultimately, it's the church that determines the canon, canon. Roman Catholics look to the church in order to authenticate the canon. Um, and again, within Roman Catholicism, it's not as, you know, they're, they're always accusing us of not being united in any way. There's a lot of factions within the Roman Catholic Church as well. They're not as united as you might think or they might bring themselves to a pair. There are more moderate versions of this where some in the Catholic Church don't say that the church doesn't stand in authority of the canon. But much as we believe, it's the, it's the scriptures that hold that are over the church. But the Roman Catholic Church does give their approval. That's a moderate view. It's a minority view as well. A stricter version is this is how you can know. This is what the church tells us that the books are. And that's really the church is kind of the foundation of the canon itself. So it's the ground. The church is the ground for the authority of the canon. The canon doesn't have authority apart from the church. See, this is a, a big deal. Well, we're saying, look, it's the scriptures that have the authority. Over us, we receive what they have. Yeah, we see issues with the Oh, poor Kevin. Go ahead, let it go. Cough it out, man. We're all friends here. We went down the wrong pipe. So, positives that we definitely do agree. Uh, the church plays a role in receiving the books. They do admit there's divine activity involved in the establishment of the canon. They look to the Lord. They look for certain marks in the books, and we'll talk more about that as we think, talk about our model. And uh, we do have the same books of the New Testament, so that's really good. But the, on the downside, and this is a response to the church-created canon, is the biblical evidence is to the contrary. It just is. So like, like in Ephesians 2.20, I'll just read that very quickly. And again, we go much, much deeper into all of this. We're told that in verse 18, through, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father, so... Then no longer you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles 
and of the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So it's really important when he talks about build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we see that as like, so the apostles who were inspired by God, who wrote scripture, primarily the, well, the New Testament, the prophets is really a reference to the Old Testament writers. So that's the Old Testament and New Testament. The church is built on the foundation of apostolic teaching and, and the teaching of the prophets and not the other way around. It's not that, you know, the church gives authority kind of to scripture and what this is over that as opposed to scripture has authority over us. Does that make sense to you guys? Any questions or comments at this point? I know it sounds like a fine line argument, but it has huge, huge implications as you go down the road. Um, a second problem with this is that the idea that the church causes the canon misses the fact that the church already had canon, didn't they? So if you think in the New Testament church, what canon did the New Testament church already have? Which books were already authoritative and authenticated and used by the, by the early church? Of course, the Old Testament. That was the canon. As, as, as the New Testament was being written, they, they had the Old Testament. It was used by the New Testament writers. It was received as scripture by Jesus. The church didn't determine, like it wasn't the church didn't determine those Old Testament books. You know, it wasn't like, okay, we're, we give our stamp of approval so now you can use them. No, they were already had been received as canon, as inspired. So if you have to have a church to determine the canon, how do you have the canon already before the church existed? That's one of the questions that really, like, you know, Roman Catholics have to think about. Again, it's in, when this is brought up in a more scholarly way and like over a debate or something, this is one of the, the questions the Protestants will have for the Roman Catholics, you know. So, and it, it really, Catholics wrestle with this one a lot, you know, because they, they know that the Old Testament was inspired, it was a kid, and it was there, but it wasn't the church that gave its stamp of approval to it as such. Um, Jesus and the apostles confirmed the Old Testament scriptures. And everybody agreed on the books of the Old Testament. No matter how many arguments Jesus got into with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, one thing they never argued about was what? The validity of the Old Testament. You know, this, this is what Scripture wrote. They all believed that that was Scripture. Jesus taught from there. He validated the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons. It's not part of this class, but that's one of the reasons we do believe the Old Testament Scriptures to be canon, to be true, because the New Testament writers quoted from that, used the Old Testament scriptures continuously and constantly. So um, there is a way to know which books are from God without an official church declaration because um, the Old Testament had books from God without an official church declaration. Does that make sense? That's, a, that's kind of a, another strong argument, like a, a negative to, to the community model where the church is over the books instead of the book being over the church. Also from the earliest days, number three, a Christian received the books as scripture, um, right? Before there was any church declarations, before there were any councils, people were already using what was written and it was considered scripture. We've talked about this in the past. We looked at Second uh, Peter and different other parts of the New Testament where they were already, this was already being used as a church, as scripture, as authoritative. And so they, before there was any declarations, oh, this is canon, right? If we can't have, if we cannot have any books before the church declares them to be scripture, then we're waiting to the fourth century, fourth, fifth century, um, 
before that? If it wasn't canon, what was the church using in the first four centuries, and how did they know which books to use? So these are just things to think about in, in terms of negative. So I'm just going to stop there with the Roman Catholic model because uh, I don't want to get into a deeper discussion on how they established their authority. I won't talk about that tonight, unless you want to go back and we have time. Um, a third model, and it's kind of like the first one, it's called the canonical criticism model. Um, it's kind of like, again, like I said, number one, but it did have a big influence because this gentleman who's kind of at the center of this was considered not to be real liberal, but he was almost considered to be conservative, which is I, it's a misnomer. He really wasn't necessarily. Uh, his name was Brevard Childs, very influential Old Testament theologian in the 20th century, especially in the 50s and 60s. Um, he believed, and here's what he believed, that the text was, listen, the most important thing for Childs was that you had a canon, right? That, that you had those books. That was the most important thing. But here's the problem. He believed that the text could have been changed or most likely was changed before it was canonized in the 3rd, 4th century in that area. Um, it was modified. It was added to. But he didn't care about that. He said, that, that's okay. He was only concerned that we had books that the church decided were canon. And that was very important for him. And that sounded good to a lot of people. Okay, we don't have to believe. You know, there may have been changes, but now, but now here are the books. Now we have them, and this is it. This is what we have. So the canon for him was books that function as canon, even if they've been modified, additions were made. You can see the obvious problems here. Uh, the whole idea that the Bible or the text was changed is crazy. I mean, that's, yeah, that's just... It, well, at least up to the fourth century or whatever. You know, what, if it was changed early on, what makes it so special in the fourth century? Just because they have these books here, that we can't change it now. So we don't. It's it, it's no. This is the word of God, and we talked about this in our textual criticism class. Um, we're not free to to change, edit, or modify at all, ever, and not just when the books are canonized. Um, he's saying, kind of saying that inspiration is not necessarily with the original writer. Now, we believe that the original writers were inspired by God. They're writing God's word. Uh, but then copies were made. And, you know, we had the, the, the things we talked about in our textual criticism class. So that this guy say, not necessarily, you know. Yeah, the original writers are probably inspired. But there's also kind of a, a social community inspiration, too. So they changed things. They modified things. They added things like the pericope of the woman uh, caught in adultery, that kind of thing, you would say. It doesn't matter if that's in there or not, if it's biblical or not. As long as, as, long as we have the books, you know, that's, that's it. So if things were added, the longer ending of Mark, you know, that's, that's okay. And, you know, we don't have to really rest as long as we have a canon. So that was kind of his thing. And for some reason it was popular. People liked that idea. But, you know, that's just not, again, what all these do, they put the authority over the text and not vice versa. Always the Bible for us. It's always the Bible for us. So we accept the scriptures because there's something that make them unique, true, accurate, connected. We see that, and we'll see that when we talk about the self-authenticating model. Uh, again, Childs believed that the canon, not because it's special or necessarily even divine, but because the church decided that these are the books. So again, kind of connected with number one. 
But these are all different ways where you say how you got your books. Well, this group of people decided on the books. And here's the authority behind that. So if it's a Roman Catholic church, then it's a Roman Catholic church. If it's just a group of people that want theological debates and discussions, that's the authority behind that. That doesn't wash. You know, it doesn't, doesn't, can't. Because you're still putting the ultimate authority in man's hands. So, we have, um, I do, let me mention before we go to ours, the existential view of canon. These are, again, liberal theologians like Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, Rudolf Boltmann. These are German theologians um, who, who, who treat the books as canon even though they're flawed. Again, this is kind of the same old story, especially for Karl Barth. Some people thought he was reformed and conservative because he had that language. He taught at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Not where I went. I went to RPTS. But this is the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which is liberal. We went down there one time. And they still have a, a desk, his desk from his classroom, kind of. It's like a museum piece. Oh, this was Karl Barth's desk. Big deal. Barth was a neo-Orthodox guy. And for him, he said, okay, you have all these books, fine and good. They're flawed and whatever. But what makes them holy and inspired is when you're reading it, and again, I'm simplifying this, but the idea is when you read it and you get that burst of revelation, now that makes sense to you. That means that's inspired, but not necessarily everything in the book, even the miracles and so forth. But when that makes, when something strikes you, then it's inspired, and that's part of canon, that's part of true scripture. That's kind of the neo-Orthodox existential Bardian view of scripture. So, what I'm going to do just here in the next couple minutes, and I think we will finish early tonight, <laughs> um, is an overview of the self-authenticating model. This is where we're going to put our time in. This week and next week especially, right from the start next week, we're just going to really dig in. It might take two classes, hopefully one, and then hopefully we'll go to... Um, I want to talk about the Gospel of Thomas because that's a big deal. The Apocrypha and then different translations kind of to finish out our time. And then beyond that, I have I have really basically decided that starting in the spring, we will be doing church history because we have enough people that really want to do that. And I'm fired up to do it. And I have my notes. We're going to have slides. But that, Lord willing, will start in the springtime. Um, so that's that's a big deal. But anyway... For the rest of our time. Overview of the self-authenticating model. For us, I don't want to get too philosophical, too deep, or talk about all the different approaches that we, or our approach that we have, especially to apologetics. We are presuppositional. That just means that we have a basic presupposition that God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, his word is true. Everything we start with God all the time. So even if you're talking to somebody and you're witnessing to them, you're trying to prove God, we're not necessarily going to say, okay, look at all the evidence out there and hopefully that will convince you. What we'll say is evidence is fine and we'll bring that in, but we know from what the Bible teaches that you know that God exists because he created you, because you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because you show, you show by the things that you do and that you don't do that you know God. Okay, Even the good things that you do show that you know him, the things that are sinful, show that you need him. Okay, That's a real, real basic, easy summary of presuppositionalism. But anyway, it's the idea that God is sovereign over all things and holy. So, 
For an ultimate authority, for an authority to be ultimate, I should say, it must be self-authenticating. All right, so it's not a church, not the people. It's a scripture themselves, because of who God is, that show us that they are God's word. Okay, it is self-authenticating. Again, it's our most basic presupposition. Otherwise, you have an endless regress. Well, if it's a church that's authoritative, how do they get their authority? Where do they get their authority? Where do they get their authority? It goes all the way back, back, back. Um, in Scripture, we're told that God, when He swears, He had to swear by why? Yeah, right. Why? He had to swear by himself. There's no higher authority. He's the ultimate authority, and that's it. That's what it comes down to. This is the reform view. This was the view, especially John Calvin worked out in his in his writings. The Puritans, especially John Owen. Oh man, it's just, just thick. I reading. I can't read John Owen. He's just too much for me. He's way over. <laughs> I just I'm not that clever. Um, you know, I know my limitations. Uh, and others. This is this is what we believe. So, what it doesn't mean the self-authenticating model. It doesn't. It's not referring to the idea that scripture claims the claims that the Bible makes about itself. Right. That's self-attestation. It does attest to itself. You know, all scriptures God breathed, profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That's self-attestation. That's not necessarily what we're talking about when we talk about self-authenticating. It's not simply talking about the qualities of Scripture. Of course, they are included in that. You know, that the, these things that tell you, that show you that this is from God, it must be from God. Um, and an example of that is in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question number four, if I could find it. So... How does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves. See that? They manifest themselves. The highest authority is scripture himself from God, not man. They show us that they're the word of God. We don't decide that this is the word of God. They, they manifest themselves to be the word of God. How? By their majesty, their purity, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. By their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very Word of God. This is really it. We talked about this last time too. When we talked about it comes down to this. This is the idea how they manifest themselves. This is really the model for how we know which books belong in the New Testament. It's God's supernatural activity and superintending over these things. Does that make sense? What's it mean to say the canon self-authenticating? Basically just what I said. We can't authenticate the scripture without appealing to it. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Oh, you need something outside. No, no, no. We look to the scripture itself and they manifest themselves. They show themselves to be scripture because of these different kinds of attributes, the things that we see in them. The canon sets the terms for its own validation. Why? Because it's from God. Because it's from God. Right? And there's good proof and good evidence for it. It's not just blind, but it's we see it. Again, a lot of it's answered in that question from the larger catechism. But there are three big ideas connected with this, with this model. The first, and this is what we're really going to get into next week, and this is what I really want you to have 
in your heart, in your mind, as you think about, and if you talk to people about how do we get our Bible, how do you know that these books are part of the Bible, at least you're going to have a jumping off point in your conversation instead of saying, well, you know, just God gave it to us. That's good and it's true, but it always helps if you have a little bit more that you can give to the conversation to help. Not necessarily convince those persons. Again, with presuppositionalism, you just want to get people to start thinking and to show them what they believe. They have to have proof for what they believe and that there's on sinking sand if they're not standing on Scripture. So you want to kind of bring them to an end to themselves. Not necessarily start trying, oh, please believe this. Here, look at this. But to show them, to, to show them that what they believe to, without God doesn't make sense. Right? Precondition of intelligibility. It can't make sense without God. So, anyway, the three components of the self-attesting model. Number one is providential exposure. This will all be in your outline next week, so don't worry. You can take notes if you want to tonight. Attributes of canonicity and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember our answer from number four, you can kind of see where we're going here. So, first of all, and this is what we're going to talk about next week deeply, each one of these, we're going to take them and, and give you what we got on that. First of all, God providentially, and there's a supernatural. That's where the, the naturalists, the liberals, they don't think. This is why you can't really, really know. I guess they just won their battle and that's why they have these books. No, God providentially makes certain that people have the writings. They're not lost. They didn't get lost, right? They, God makes a way for, for his church to have his writings. So if you think back to our last class or you know when we're talking about biblical criticism what's one way that god providentially made sure we had the writings we had so many copies (laughs) yeah you got it that's one of the reasons oh that brings all the errors no no no. we have we compare it to the ancient writings how many more it's an embarrassment of riches that's one way God providentially made sure that we had those copies. So if a letter was written to, the, to, to Christians in Rome, they would write that letter and they would send it to They would make a copy of that, make a copy of that. That's one way that God providentially made it. So we'll talk more about that next week. We see, number two, the divine attributes in these writings. They reveal themselves to be scripture. Again, about things that we read, just the majesty, the purity, the consent of all the part. It's living. It's a living word. It transforms lives. We're convicted. We're converted by it. It, It's it's everything to us. It tells us. It shows us the way things are. It teaches us about God, how we got here, what our problem is, what the solution to our problem is, how we're to live as God's people. All these things are made plain. It explains sin. It explains death. It explains why we're afraid to die. It explains the hope that you have if you're trusting in Christ of not dying in, in the life to come. All these things. So we're going to see that, these divine attributes in the writing. And then they're recognized properly. Remember in this question of, of number four, only recognized properly through the work of the Holy Spirit. He superintends over all of it. We need the Holy Spirit. And there's the supernatural again. You know, and this is where people are going to say, oh, you guys are just believing in that blah, blah, blah. You know, you have to believe on that pie in the sky. No, 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 no. Because there's great evidence as you read the scriptures how they manifest themselves. Okay, And each book that in the New Testament has these qualities and that's something you need to understand. All three of these steps are required. You can't have like two without one, right? 
You can't know which books are from God without the attributes of canon. You need the Holy Spirit to recognize them. You can't recognize a book that you don't have, so God providentially makes sure we have them. You can't recognize books that don't have these attributes, like you see these, these qualities, these divine qualities. You can't recognize books without the Holy Spirit giving you eyes to see them. Now, big question that comes, we're just going to end it here tonight, um, is, well... You know, how'd you come up with this model? <laughs> isn't it just a man-made? Didn't you just, isn't it just arbitrary? Like, you know, why does it have to meet these three things? Why do you have to do these three? Where do they come from? Well, here's what I want you to know, and here's what you're going to see as we go through this. These aren't just arbitrary. It's not just some guys or a group of people that say, okay, we don't believe in the community model, or, you know, just all those kinds of things. But here's what we believe. You know, step one, step two, step three. You need all these things. These things themselves, these these qualities, these attributes, really come from the scriptures themselves. That's the biggest deal of all. Again, it's all about the scripture. The model is not arbitrary. It comes from scripture itself. And that's what gives us reasons to expect that they're providentially preserved by God, that they have divine qualities, that the Holy Spirit illuminates us to know them. This will all be on your outline next week. So those are the three big things. Uh, that's really important for you to get, that it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, we just decided to make these things the three, they need to meet this criteria. Well, where'd you get that criteria? It comes right from Scripture itself. Self-authenticating. The church didn't decide which books to put in the Bible. The church received those books. Now, at one time, at that certain point in time, it was codified into the New Testament, but it was already there. It's not like, oh, the church said these, these, and these are the books. We already had the books. We received the books. They were being used. They had these qualities to them. And this is, this is what gives us confidence to know that these are truly the books that God intended for us to have in the New Testament. It wasn't that we won the battles. It wasn't that, you know, just a certain group of people just decided these were going to be the books. These are the books that God gave that were there from the beginning, the earliest time in the church, and they just were brought in and received. And you're going to see how. So that's a big, big deal. Okay? Does that make sense? Good. Next week, we're going to look at this, dig in on each one of these, and then we'll go from there. Any questions or comments? As far as I can go? It makes sense. All right. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. Again, we thank you. We want to, we have confidence. We know that this is your word, but we know it because you preserved it. We know it, Lord, because of the the qualities of the divine qualities of it, we know it because you've illuminated our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit to know, to see, to understand. We know it because it's true. We know it because it comports with life. We know it because without it, we can't make sense of this world of right or wrong or why we do the things we do and do not do the things that we do not do, Lord God. So we, we, we know and we thank you Lord God, and I just pray that you, again, would help us to be able to share this, to be able to talk about this, because we are charged with giving an answer for the hope that lies within us, while we know full well and rely on your spirit to apply that, to make those changes in the hearts, to renew people, Lord. But we just pray that we would grow in our knowledge and our confidence in you and in your word. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.